Scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. If you find that, you can stand. You already are. So 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 6. In pointing these things, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Let's pray. Lord, I do again just thank you for speaking to us through your word. We do want to hear, to respond in faith and obedience, and that you would truly be magnified in our lives. We give thanks to you, God, that you are willing to speak to us, willing, Lord, to instruct, to correct, to teach, and to train, to grow us up, Lord, and to continue to impart to us the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that is true of him. So we do, God, pray that we would hear all that you would have and that you would be truly blessed, God. In Christ's name, amen. This passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, as you remember, starts with an exhortation and warning about apostasy. And really the whole chapter, Paul seems to have that in mind because at the very last of the chapter, he's saying, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. Probably not salvation in the sense of of forgiveness of our sins because Timothy was already saved and so were his hearers, but salvation probably in the sense of not being those who apostatize, who turn away from Christ and his word. Normally, it is not a good thing um, to be a person who hears voices and speaks to himself. That would usually concern us. At one of the local restaurants where I go to get an iced tea sometimes in the afternoon, there has been a young man there who seems to be a bit troubled, and he speaks to himself, and it is a bit disconcerting. Um, I don't know that he hears voices. I know that others claim to, and that's always worrisome. But when it comes to the Word of God, We ought to be people who hear the voice of God. 
and who speak to ourselves. As God speaks to us, we give our amen. Lord, this is true. Lord, you're revealing me. You're addressing me. And we're honest with ourselves about whether we are responding to that or not. And this is a passage, certainly, where the Lord has been speaking to me. I would hate to go to a doctor who was greatly overweight, chain-smoking, and who says to me, you should really take care of yourself. (laughs) And I can tell you, God has been speaking to the preacher through this passage. There is in all of us the tendency to drift. And the warning here is for each of us. And the absolute importance of God's word for those who claim to know Jesus cannot be overstated. We say we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, but all too often we are people who are not people of the book. Growing in our knowledge of the book and of the Lord Jesus Christ himself through the book. So Timothy is told, beginning in verse 6, Paul says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, what things? The things about apostasy. The things about godliness. He said at the end of of chapter 3, this is the mystery of godliness. We've talked about that now. It's hard to overstress it. That Christ himself is the mystery of godliness. Christ, God, living in the man. There is no way to be godly apart from God's indwelling presence. Apostasy would put emphasis on Jesus plus something when there is nothing that can be added to Christ. If you've received Christ, you've received everything you will ever need for living the Christian life. A person begins to move into apostasy. He's drifting from Christ, even though he may be claiming Christ, saying that he's trusting in Christ. But if he's adding to Christ, he is departing from Christ. If he makes a strict dichotomy between the physical, natural world and the spiritual world and and doesn't see that the Spirit of God is always meant to to interact with and to to, um, embed himself in this life so that everything that we do is done by the Spirit of God and is therefore spiritual, if we're not seeing that connection, that it's not just a life for Sunday, it is not a life that's, that's only about the heavenly, but it's his life impacting this very life that we live. If we're making a dichotomy where God says there is union, we're moving into apostasy. In pointing these things out, Paul says to Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. When I was first was trying to study this, this passage in some depth, and I, and I saw that phrase, in pointing these things out. I go, well, that's a gentle phrase. And, and Paul is encouraging Timothy to just, you don't have to scream at people, you don't have to yell at people, just point out the truth, and that will be enough. And my mind took me to Proverbs, where it says that, with the fool, though you beat him a hundred times, yet his folly will not depart from him. And James, it says, the wisdom of God is pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable. And that God doesn't typically scream at us. He just speaks. And if the person has a heart of wisdom, then God can speak gently and we will respond. That you don't, and if a person has a heart of folly, then it doesn't matter what you say, how loudly you say it or how often you beat them, they're not going to hear it. So just point it out. But, a little later on, 
in this same passage, Paul says he speaks with, with greater emphasis. He'll say in verse 11, prescribe these things, which is another way of saying insist on it. So you can point it out gently, but without compromise. It is an insistence. I'm being gentle about it, but you need to understand there's only one way to go here. It's the right way or the wrong way. Be insistent. But yes, of course, being gentle and wise in how you do it. Point these things out, and you will be a good servant. So the first thing about it, and I think he's going to say four aspects of being a good servant of Christ Jesus here in this passage. The first, you point, people, point out to people the truth concerning that the mystery of godliness is Christ in us, and it is nothing to add to that. Secondly, a good servant of Christ Jesus is one who is constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith. It's just not possible, it would seem that Paul is saying, to separate again Christ from his word. If you want to grow and be nourished in Christ, feed on the words of the faith. You can't go wrong. And on the words of sound doctrine. I don't know a lot. And for that reason, I keep coming back a lot to Proverbs 30 because I can identify. I've quoted it before. Surely I am more stupid than any man. And I do not have the understanding of a man. Neither have I learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One, who has ascended into heaven and descended, who has gathered the wind in his fist, who has wrapped the waters in his garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. In other words, you're just as stupid as I am. I'm an idiot, and you're an idiot, and we're all idiots. And then the next verse, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. I don't know anything, and neither do you, but I don't have to. I don't have to be the source of knowledge. I know the one who is all knowledge and who has revealed knowledge. And so I come to him. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge to him. Do not add to his words, lest he reprove you and you be proved a liar. God put a tree in the garden of the knowledge of good and evil and intended for Adam and Eve to stay away from it. They ate of it. And their eyes were open to know good and evil. God will say at the Tower of Babel, he comes down and looks at the energies of man devoted on being God. And God said, they have become like us, knowing good and evil. What can be so bad about knowing good and evil? God knows good and evil. 
It's not knowing good and evil that's the problem. It's the source of the knowledge that's the problem. Acquiring knowledge apart from God and his word. I don't need God in his word. I don't need to do what God says, in other words, in, in, in order to be wise in understanding and discerning. And God says, even if that were true, it would be humanity apart from my spirit, and that is sin. I have created you so that you could find your knowledge and your wisdom, your discernment in me. Not in all these other books, not through all the universities, nothing wrong with books and universities. I have university degrees and I have lots of books. But if I'm finding my knowledge apart from God's word, if I am minimizing the absolute imperative of God's word for growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, even for knowing right and wrong, then I am eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I am not coming to God for that. And I am apostatizing. We know the richness of so many passages in Scripture that speak about the importance of God's Word for the believer. Psalm 19, Psalm 119 in particular, unbelievable passages of all that the Word of God is to us. No wonder Paul says to Timothy, the good servant of Christ Jesus is one who is constantly nourished on the words of the faith and the words of sound doctrine. There are among um, evangelical thinkers, there is a constant debate, which should not be a debate, in my mind, about the importance, well, no, the origins of God, the origin of God's word, and whether or not God wrote it in the original without error. Honestly, I don't know why it's even a debate. It is true nobody has ever seen an original copy of Scripture from anywhere. There's no portion of the Bible, the 66 books, where we have an original copy of the book that's still in existence today. That is true. But there's only one of two choices. Either in the originals it had errors, or in the originals it did not have errors. Those are the only two choices, right? And so, yes, there is a bit of a faith assumption, whichever whichever choice you take. But there is all the evidence is on the side, without ever having seen an original manuscript, all the evidence is on the side of saying the originals were without error because of the testimony of Scripture. It's not an a priori argument, in other words, to say the original documents were without error. It is an exegetical argument. When Proverbs 30 says, every word of God has been tested and found to be true, that is an exegetical argument to say the originals were without error. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass away without it all first being fulfilled. It is an exegetical argument to say, It is all from God and is without error. 
I've heard one speaker recently say, it's just this simple. Do you believe God does not err? All evangelicals believe that. God does not err. Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? All evangelicals believe the Bible is the word of God. Well, then the conclusion is the Bible is without error. If God doesn't err and the Bible is the word of God, then the Bible is without error. It's just that simple. Why is it important? We know 1 Corinthians 15 says that the ground of our salvation is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless and we are still in our sins. We all affirm that. How do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Because the Bible tells you so. So that, therefore, the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture in the originals is not just a point to be debated. If the Bible is not without error, it is not the Word of God, because God does not err. It's just that simple. And if the, and if the Bible has errors in it from the original, then who can say the resurrection really happened? Or anything else in the Bible actually happened. As one person said, is the epistemological foundation of our faith. That the Bible is without error. And if it is without error, how can you possibly go wrong to saturate yourself with it? To nourish yourself with it? There is nothing else that can do for you what the Word of God can do. It is truly the power of God unto salvation. Paul holds nothing back in strongly encouraging this young preacher. Live in this book. Feed off this book. Be nourished off this book. What did that look like practically in in Timothy's life? How many hours a day did he spend? Studying the book. How much scripture was he memorizing? We have no idea, and it's a good thing. Because if Paul told us, then we would all become legalists, and that's the thing we'd be doing, and checking it off. I did that, and so he doesn't even tell us. No two people have the same responsibilities, the same burdens. We understand that. And what some, one person may have time to devote himself to, another person doesn't even have time to go to the bathroom. And we understand that. And so it's not one size fits all. But each of us know in our hearts the time that God has given us, the level of responsibilities he's given us, and whether or not we are choosing to be nourished off the word of God when we could be or not. This is something between you and God. It's not between me and you. It's between each of us individually and God. Where are we finding our nourishment? Where are we feeding And the Lord would encourage us, not just Timothy, but all of us, be nourished from the words of the faith, from the words of sound doctrine. Have nothing to do, at the end of verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. That's a little harsh. And certainly not politically correct. I would never say anything like that. (laughs) But I'll just talk about okra in ways that I shouldn't have ever said. Like, you know, listen to last Sunday's sermon. 
On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. If Paul is doing nothing else, he's just saying, as a young man, approach life, approach your spiritual life as a man. And that means get serious, purposeful, intentional, focused, and work hard. And a young man, he typically responds to that kind of talk. I had a grandmother who doted on us too much. When bird season came, and my dad and grandfather wanted to be out every minute they could to slaughter as many doves as they could. (laughs) Poor defenseless little creatures. And it was long days. We were up before the sun, and we would drive out to the hunting place, and we wanted to shoot the birds just as soon as they left those trees. And we would hunt till lunchtime and come home and clean birds and take a quick nap and hit it again in the afternoon and slaughter them all over again. And it was hot and dusty, and one of my little brothers just didn't want to do it. And he would say, I just want to stay home. I don't like going out there and shooting birds. Because none of us kids got to shoot. We were the bird dogs. <laughs> and my grandmother would say, you can just stay home with me. Sit in the air conditioning and drink a Coke. And the older boys would just kind of grind their teeth. <laughs> and we're going, you're not going to make a sissy out of our brother. <laughs> and my dad said the same thing to her. Not happening. He's going to go out and be a boy with the other boys. And you are not going to coddle him like a little girl in the house. That was not a bad thing. Growing up down in Corpus, and it was really hot in those summer days, and my mother would kick us all out of the house, and we'd come back, banging on the door, we're thirsty. And she would say from inside the house, because she'd locked the doors. <laughs> There's a water hose outside. Turn it on. That was good for us. One time at youth group in high school, the youth leader wanted us to dig trenches to make a um, haunted house at Halloween that people were going to come through. And he asked for me and my brothers to be his ditch diggers. And we could think of a lot better things to do with our time. One of them was lift weights. And my mother came in and shamed us. And she goes, here you will sit in an air-conditioned house and lift weights to build muscle, but you won't go out and dig a ditch. Go dig a ditch. And we went and dug ditches. And we were glad we did. A young man will typically respond well to this kind of talk. Buck it up. Get with it. Don't get soft. But it's true for all of us. Don't be a soft old woman. Paying attention to fables and myths and speculations. But discipline yourself throughout your life. And as I'm getting older, I need to hear it all the more. I've said through the years, I am thankful that God has given me the opportunity to preach on Sundays. As busy as I am, 
Because at Bible school, I'm teaching pretty much the same thing year after year. And so the discipline of having to get ready to preach has been a very beneficial thing in my life. It's kept me in the Word, kept me fresh, and has kept me growing. Whereas teaching the same classes year after year, there would be more of a temptation just to get into a rut. You can't get in a rut when you're preaching God's Word every Sunday. We need discipline imposed upon us. And many times God will do that for us. Now I need to be careful here because there is a a discipline without power. And Paul talks about that in his next letter to Timothy. There are those who have accepted a form of godliness, but they have denied the power thereof. And this is a discipline for godliness. But you can accept that kind of discipline for godliness and deny yourself of the very power of God. So it's just what you're doing. And it's not what God's wanting to do in you. So discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it's whole promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Amen. We are all going to be in heaven one day with the same kind of glorified body. I think it's going to be ripped. There's going to be abdominal muscles again. There's going to be biceps again. And no one's going to have lifted weights. So that professional weightlifter today is not going to look any better than me in heaven. Oh, that's going to be sweet. Isn't it? All that time you spent on that. And look, I'm just as good as you are, right? Personal bodily discipline today has some profit. Amen. But really, it has so little profit, and it has no profit eternally. And he's speaking here, discipline yourself with eternity in view. And there's some mystery here I don't understand at all. None of us do, of how life here can impact eternity. But it is clear from God's word that it does. There will be reward. There will be loss of reward. We know that. Some Christian writers think it goes, more, it goes even further than reward or loss of reward. This is where you know, I think about um, Bill Bilheimer and his book, Destined for the Throne and Don't Waste Your Sorrows, two different books. And in those, he says, there are things that God is wanting to work into our lives now that this is the only opportunity there will be for all of eternity. Because in this life, there's things to resist, there's things, there's, there's things to persevere in, there's people to be patient with, there's all kinds of things, graces that God is wanting us to learn and grow in that there will not be the opportunity, Billheimer says, in the next world, in the next life. That's amazing thought. I don't know whether he's right or not, but it seems to ring kind of true. That if only in this context... Can we learn be, through, can we grow, for example, can we develop character through tribulation because tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance proves proving character and we're not going to have tribulation in the next world. Well, then tribulation is pretty significant in how I respond to it. I don't understand it all. Maybe Bill Heimer's out to lunch. But it is true from what Paul's saying here. 
that godly discipline, disciplining yourselves for godliness today holds benefit for this life and for the life to come. The particulars, I don't know. But I know that's the, the case. That it holds benefit now and in the future. You'll never regret having put Jesus first. His word first. Having a mindset that says this life is not about me. It's not about what I get, what I accumulate, how many people know me. This life is not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. It's his life. It isn't mine. A person who's truly living a disciplined life, and I've known a few professional athletes. Typically, they've been former professional athletes when I've met them. But they've told me, every one of them, that in those days of living as a professional athlete, they could not live as though their life was their own. They were, they were owned by the team. And the team decided how much they were going to exercise, when they were going to go to sleep at night, what kind of food they were going to eat. And if it was somebody who was not part of a team, I had a friend that was a professional weightlifter. Still, every aspect, every calorie was counted. He made sure that he was eating 100% protein diets. And on the occasion that he would indulge and have a piece of apple pie at my mom's house, he would say, I've got to go home and do an extra 100 sit-ups tonight. Just constantly disciplining himself. And Paul says, I buffet my body lest after having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. We're not adequate for these things. But again, the Lord who lived with single-minded devotion to the Father lives in us that we would have the same single-minded devotion to him. A pure and simple undistracted devotion to Christ. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, Paul's saying, regarding personal discipline for godliness holds benefit for this life and for the life to come. Let me just one more thing on that. Again, one of the things I so appreciate about this church over the years has been its support of so many students at His Hill. It's been great to see. As a director of a torchbearer center, obviously I speak with bias and prejudice whenever I try to encourage a parent to send their kid to a torchbearer school. Oh yeah, that's your job, you know. It's an entirely different thing when there's a church that says, we see the benefit and we're behind it. And then you tell others. We just put together a video um, his, for His Hill, and I thought, you know, we need to have a parent speak. And Joette, who's here, she spoke on our video. Tremendous. From a parent's perspective, a parent to parent, this is what it looks like to send your kid, to encourage your child, to discipline himself for godliness, to nourish himself on the words of truth and the words of sound doctrine. How can you go wrong? If he is our single-minded devotion and you have the time and you have the wherewithal to put yourself in a place where God's word can be soaked into your being, where you can saturate in it, man, why would you do anything else? You'll never regret it. 
It holds benefit for this life and for the life to come. Verse 10, it is for this we labor and strive, this single-minded devotion, knowing that this life does count for eternity because we have fixed our hope on the living God. So our hope is not in disciplines. Our hope is in God. So even though Paul speaks about disciplines, my hope is not that I can have a more disciplined life and turn out the way I want it to be. That's just pure legalism. That's a mechanical way to approach Christianity. It's a personal relationship with him. And if in that personal relationship, God wants every thought to be taken captive to Christ, then every thought should be taken captive because it's what he wants. What's controlling me and driving me is his love for me. It's the personal relationship. It's not discipline for the sake of what I can get that my life turns out better. But it's the hope in a living God that motivates me, drives me, contains me, focuses me. And that living God is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Again, another straightforward statement that shouldn't cause any problem to anybody, but unfortunately, it does. I've come across at least six ways that little phrase can be understood. He is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. One, God is the Savior of all men, in the sense that he actually saves every human being who will ever live. In other words, universalism. Well, if that's true, then why does he say he's the Savior of all men, especially of believers? Doesn't make sense. He doesn't need to add the phrase, especially believers, if all people are going to be saved. A second way, he bestows salvation on all kinds of people. Same objection. Well, if he means he's the savior of all kinds of individuals and not all individuals, then why did he say all kinds of individuals? And then why does he add especially believers? Doesn't make sense. Third, he wants all men to be saved, but in the case of some, his will is frustrated by obstinate unbelief. In the response, it doesn't say he wants to save all. It says he saves. He is the Savior of all. Fourth, he is able to save all, but though some are, but though some um, are able to be, he is able to save, only believers are saved. So he's able to save all, but only believers are saved. This is that the text doesn't say he can, it says he is. He is Savior of all. A fifth one. This is pretty creative. He is savior of all men in respect to dangers and trials of this life and in respect to eternal salvation for those who believe. So in the one verse, you have savior used two different ways. That gets too complicated for me. So though the word savior and salvation can be in reference to both temporal and eternal salvation, it is highly unlikely that Paul would use the same word in two different ways in the same verse without any indication that he has two different meanings in mind. And moreover, already in Timothy, Paul has spoken of Jesus as God being the savior of all. 1 Timothy 1.1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior. 1 Timothy 2, 3, 
This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. And finally, the way that just seems to make most sense to me is that he is. Not could be, he is Savior of all men. But that's not to say all men are going to be saved. He is Savior of all men. Salvation has been provided for all. But especially for believers in that they are the ones who will actually be saved. Some object where you put a difference between potential and actual. You can't do that. Yes, we can. Classic example from the Gospels is when Jesus says, Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So we go back and look at that passage in Numbers. We don't know how many people have been snake bit, but lots and lots of people have. And it's very simple, very clear. Moses puts up a bronze serpent, and he says, look at it. Who? Everyone who has been bitten, without exception. And you can be healed. So This, there is an antidote that is available for all. How many looked? Some. Not all. Can't imagine. But some people with venomous snake bite refused to look at the antidote that had been supplied. But the antidote was for all. All could have been saved. Some were. Philippians chapter 2, we're told that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But that does not mean for a minute that every person will be saved. But he is Lord, and he is Lord over all. But that doesn't mean all will be saved. He is Savior, and he has provided salvation for all. But that doesn't mean all will be saved. Scripture is clear. Salvation is for all, but not all will be saved. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. From Hebrews, he tasted death for all. And in 1 John, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for also those of the whole world. Our hope is fixed on the living God who is the Savior of all men. All has been provided. I find that a deeply encouraging truth. That there is nobody on the street that I can't walk up to and say, friend, Everything that needs to happen for you to be forgiven of your sins and enter into a relationship with the living God has already taken place. All you need do is receive the gift that has been extended to you. And he can be your personal Savior. That's what Paul's saying here. He is the Savior of all men, especially for those who put their faith in Christ. 
Paul tells Timothy, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness. We believe he was probably in his 30s, and a man was considered to be still in his youth until he was 40. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift which was in you, bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance and laying on of hands by the presbytery. It's my belief that we do not receive spiritual gifts after salvation. We all receive a spiritual gift when we receive the Holy Spirit because the gifts are a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But I do believe that we need grace throughout life, that grace comes from God, and God will sometimes impart grace through people praying for us. There is nothing that is actually transmitted through the laying on of hands. It is a symbol of identification, of being in partnership with others. It's nothing magical. Nothing is being, being spread from one person to another. It is simply people saying, we are with you. We stand with you. We're praying with you. We're behind you. We're supportive. We identify with you. And God hears the prayers of God's people. We all need the grace of God. We have Christ. God sometimes doesn't allow us to experience the grace that he wants us to know in Christ. It would seem until God's people pray that we are to live together in community, supporting each other in prayer, particularly the elders here in their praying for specific individuals in the church. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. Quick summary regarding teaching. Point out, be nourished on, avoid worldly fables, prescribe these things, teach these things, give attention to the reading, exhortation, and teaching, and pay close attention to your teaching. A lot in these verses about teaching. Concerning your personal life and conduct, discipline yourself for godliness, show yourself an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Pay close attention to yourself in respect to both some very strong words. Labor and strive for these things. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them. And you will progress. And you will ensure salvation for yourself and for your hearers. Not eternal salvation, but salvation from drifting away from Christ and his word. From apostasy. The Christian life is not lived in isolation. It's lived in community. We need to encourage one another. Pray for one another in respect to these things. I need your prayers. We all need to be prayed for. That this tendency towards self-indulgence, as Tozer used to say, regarding this world as a playground rather than a battleground, that it is resisted. And that the word of God has paramount influence in our lives. Every thought being taken captive to the obedience of Christ. All of our actions being controlled by Christ's love for us. It's hard to live with two gods. Very clearly, Paul is admonishing Timothy, sanctify Christ Jesus as Lord. And if he were speaking to us, he might say, and put aside 
the God of entertainment and the God of selfish pursuits. Sanctify Christ as Lord. I'll close us in prayer. I do thank you, O Father, for your grace toward us, Lord. Thank you, God, for your work on our behalf, having done everything necessary to redeem us. That the work in Christ is complete. There's nothing that could ever be added, God, to what you've given us and done for us in, in your Son, the Lord Jesus. I pray, God, more than anything else, not that we would just seek to discipline ourselves, but that we would come under your discipline, Lord. That truly our hearts would be illumined, enlivened, Lord, to your love for us in Christ. And that we would willingly and joyfully, God, surrender everything to you, bringing everything under your control. Embracing what you give us to embrace and rejecting what your spirit says to reject. Because you love us and the love of God has been poured out, shed abroad in our hearts. Lord, there's not a person in this room that wants to end up a tragedy, shipwrecked. But God, we are unwilling so much of the time to discipline ourselves for godliness. To hate what you hate. To reject what you're rejecting. And to turn our eyes to Jesus, the lover of our souls. Work in us, God, that we would be those who hear your voice and speak the truth to ourselves and walk in it. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.